All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our second panel of the day here at TBRCon 2021. For the first time today, I'm your host, David Walters of FanFiatic.com. For this panel, we're going to talk history and science fiction and fantasy. But before we get into the discussion, I'm going to let my panelists quickly introduce themselves. So, Christian, if you'd like to start. Hi, I'm Christian or Miles Cameron. Probably to this audience, I'm Miles Cameron. Uh, I've written a bunch of fantasy novels, uh, Red Knight, uh, Cold Iron. Uh, I have a science fiction novel coming out this spring called Artifact Space, which has still got a lot of history in it. And uh, on to Daniel. I'm Daniel Kelly. I'm a chef. I'm at a spare space here. Um, I wrote two books, uh, Fall of the Phoenix on the Fall of Troy and A Hero's Welcome on sort of the direct aftermath of the Fall of Troy. Sebastian? <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm Sebastian DeCastell, and, and only because it got brought up uh, before the show began, that really, yes, is my name. It's it's not a <laughs> fake name that I, I picked for swashbuckling purposes. Um, I write uh, the Great Coat series, which is a four-book series of swashbuckling fantasy for adults, and the Spell Slinger series, which is uh, young adult fantasy full of magic, which uh, and young adult fantasy means mostly consumed by people in their 20s and 30s for some reason. Um, uh, okay. And uh, on to Catherine. Um, hey everyone, I'm Catherine Arden. I'm the author of the Winter Night Trilogy, which is a historical fantasy set in Russia during the Middle Ages. Um, the the best known is the first book called The Bear and the Nightingale. Um, and I'm excited to to talk today. And I wish I'd worn red or black rather <laughs> <laughs> to match the team. Mm. Uh, Evan, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Evan Winter. I wrote uh, The Rage of Dragons and the Fires of Vengeance and uh, it's sort of secondary world fantasy. Oh, excellent. There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and it's sort of secondary world fantasy uh, loosely based on the broader continent of Africa, kind of focused on the equatorial uh, part, equatorial to south part of, of Africa. So I did, I do not and did not base uh, a lot of my book on heavy, heavy research, but more experiential research, I'll say. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this, the uh, discussion today and uh, on to Alina. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm Alina Boyden. I wrote um, Stealing Thunder, which came out last year, and uh, Gifting Fire, which is coming out in April. So if you guys want to pick that up, it's available for pre-order now. And um, I studied history formally and archaeology formally, and a lot of that informs the way that I write fantasy. And now I've just been working on a project that I just got finished with and sent to my agent, which is historical fiction for the first time. So hopefully I'll be able to delve into that a little bit as well. So. Yeah. Absolutely. If we do anything like we did on MaydayCon, you can just uh, tell everybody how quickly you're right and just make everybody come. No, I, I mean, that book took six weeks. It was really slow. Um, <laughs> it took forever. It like, Lord. You already got Catherine's eye popping. So. <laughs> mm, yeah. I'm um, fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Evan, if it makes you feel better, I have a feeling we'll go into a little bit of the experiential stuff here, uh, even though we had a panel on it earlier. I just have a feeling Sebastian or Christian will just start popping in about swords and stuff. So. Um, but for, sounds like, it sounds like Alina uh, does the most. I was going to say, Alina, Alina can definitely keep up on swords, but that yeah. was the last panel. We're not allowed to go there now. We can't go on swords. <laughs> we can't just talk Hema the whole time. Is that, oh, that's a different podcast. That's Guy Windsor's podcast. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, so kind of for the, uh, the first bit I, I want to talk about, it's just kind of general discussion. How are your novels informed or molded by culture and or history? Uh, and Sebastian, I'll start with you. Oh, thank you. I was just thinking as you were asking that question that I really didn't want to answer that question. Um, 
so you know, so it's interesting. So my graduate work was in history, um, but uh, in 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 full disclosure, I, I I left before writing my thesis, so it doesn't really count. On on the other hand, I left to join a touring rock band, so I figured it, it balances out the igno the ignominy of of abandoning your masters is balanced out by the cool parts of joining a rock band. Um, so so for me, you know what the thing that informs uh, the, the things from history that inform my books, other than the sort of the obvious things of you know taking little bits and pieces of of um, you know, in my case, a lot of you know European cultural history, or clashing some parts of um, of, of other histories inside of you know the sort of a faux American West. In the case of uh, Spellslinger, um, is mostly the the contradictions of it. So the you know the, there's this kind of perception with history and in, in fantasy that um, that somehow it's a source of, of of authenticity. And then what we sort of do is we impose a, a, ver a set of very modern preconceptions about his, you know, uh, historical cultures and ways of thinking upon this sort of fantasy world. Um, but the most the most powerful stuff for me that I learned in, in in my studies was was in history of science, where you know, learning things like the fact that the medieval people were fully capable of understanding mathematically the notion that the sun pretty much had to be at the center of the solar system. That's how the almanacs worked, and they could teleologically or cosmologically uh, view, you know, Earth as the center of the solar system and that they had this sort of balanced mindset. So when we look back on historical cultures, we have this tendency of viewing them as lesser versions of ourselves. Um, but in many ways, that's not the case, right? Their brains were like our brains and, and, and the cultures that they formed were just as sophisticated. They were just, they were just formed under different sets of circumstances. Um, and so that's the thing that I try to bring into my books is the notion of, of nuance and contradiction and, and things like that, that people don't, you know, behave in those sort of, as we call them, you know, monolithic monoculture sort of, um, ways of being and that they, you can have, you know, when we look, I, I read a lot about dueling and so, um, you know, with swords and all that stuff, just cause I, I was a fight choreographer for a while. So I, I like sword fights. Um, but, uh, we, we tend to view, you know, trial by combat and duels through this very kind of, um, almost dullard sort of lens, this sort of very brutish lens, but there was a lot of sophistication to some of those things. And there's lots of parts of it that we don't know um, that that's interesting to speculate about as well. So anyway, so that's kind of, that's what happens to me is, is predominantly I, when I'm writing fantasy, I try very hard not to let a particular set of historical preconceptions completely inform the narrative. Well, I think it's so funny that you say like that you're inspired by how people in history were just as smart as us. We're like, what I find the best is that people in history were just as dumb as us. Like that's the part that I love best is like reading that George Washington was like a himbo from, from the 18th century who like let his native allies slaughter a French leader and then admitted in a document to assassinating the French leader because he couldn't read French very well and didn't know what he was signing. I mean, that stuff just gets me every time when you look back in history and see people behaving and like all these kinds of bizarre, crazy ways that people in the modern era behave. And you think when you look in the modern era, you're like, nobody a hundred years ago acted like that. They had class. And then you read the actual stuff that happened a hundred years. You're like, oh wait, never mind. No, they didn't. Um. <laughs> Catherine, your thoughts? Um, what I, I feel like I, I sort of didn't pick through experiential. Like, here's the vibe of history. My my books are set in an actual historical moment, um, which I find. Um, 
enjoyable in the sense that it gives you like big events to strive for without having to invent your own like oh this battle actually happened um i'm gonna write towards that or whatever the thing is um you can also pull in historical characters and one reason i enjoyed writing books at medieval russia is because there's so many gaps um in the historical record that you can easily sort of fit your own ideas in without having to disturb too much like you might know that like these six people were at the same battle. One of them betrayed the others, but you have no notion of the circumstances um, behind any of those events. And so you can you can fit yourself and your characters and your own work in and around um, what's already there. And I find it enjoyable. Um, another thing I've tried to do is to um, take my fantasy from the same cultures of history. So in the case of um, my my first three books they're set in medieval Russia and the and they mix sort of folklore and mythology from like the East Slavs right um, and so you use real fairy tales and real myths and real like legends um, to fill in sort of real history and that's um, been an enjoyable process for me as a writer although it can be um, a little nitpicky as far as research goes and that's not the most fun <laughs> but um, I do like it so. I mean, I, I think there's so many different ways to to approach history and fantasy. Um, you can you can steal events, you can steal characters, you can just steal a tone or a vibe, um, like, or, or you can or you can steal a vibe and exaggerate it, like steampunk. Um, you know, steampunk is, I guess, late 19th century, but of course, people take it to the nth degree, right? Um, so, so, so yeah, it's 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 a great program, um, history and fantasy. Um, have kind of always gone together. I think think about Arthurian legends, you know, um, where where you have a semi-historical character mixed with fairies, um, and that's sort of been, yeah, been yeah. a thing for a long time. Or even not even a semi-historical character necessarily. Like, yes, it was written in history, but if you read like the original Arthurian romances, they're quite clearly like contemporary knights with fairies but set in the past, but the past is somehow still the present, which is mm -hmm. 12th century France, and it's great. Um, so that's an interesting take on it too, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and uh, that, that's a really good uh, point, because one of the things I always find entertaining about that is the fact that a lot of those romances were were sort of concocted at the time to create, a, specifically to create a false past, to try to get the knights to stop being roving bandits all the time. And uh, Christian and I always get into this because, uh, you know, of course, uh, I think we can all acknowledge that knights were horrible in every possible sense. And William Marshall was the exception that proved the rule and not otherwise. But um, so I'm William, just Marshall, that William Marshall wasn't horrible. Are you kidding me? Like, do oh you read his like, memoirs? Weeds. Deep weeds. <laughs> see, I see them coming. See, now, see, now you're, going, you're, you're going one level past me. I was just trying to provoke Christian. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but just, mean, that, just that no, point. About, That's all through your first book, too, The Traitor. You read William Marshall, there's this whole scene where he's like, where he gets reprimanded because he was nice. Like he, he won this tournament and rather than ransoming all the horses back and making them, cause like in the tournaments, you would, you would knock a knight off his horse or beat him up with a club. And then you would take his armor and his horse and he would have to buy them back from you. And that's how you made money. Right. And some of that money would go to your Lord or whatever, your sponsor. Well, he takes like six horses and he just gives them all back to the knights he took them from. And then he goes back to his 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 uh, his sponsor, and his sponsor's like, "So, uh, how about you give me a horse? Oh, you don't have any because you gave them all away, jackass." 
And William Marshall is like embarrassed and doesn't have enough money to continue fighting in tournaments. And so his 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 like sponsor is all like, okay, here's another horse. Go back out and do it right this time and don't give all those horses away. And so then he goes back <laughs> out and he like knocks like 37 dudes off their off their horses, takes their armor and their horse and is like, what up, pay, pay me. Pay me or I'm giving it away. Um, and that's how he made his fortune. Going on right now. Yeah, it's a ton of horses. And so he I was um, feel like the horses are, are taking over. I feel like um. William Marshall was like was like the chivalric knight for like three hot seconds and then was like, okay, fine, I'm just a robber knight now. Everybody's a robber knight, I'm a robber knight too. Let's just do it. And um yeah, okay. Yeah, that's so how William Marshall the rules. Freaking William Marshall. Yeah, there you okay. go. <laughs> Well, you went you went a full step past me, but I, uh, I'm sorry. But I apologize in, 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 in provoking Christian, but um, uh, but I will say that, but but just that it, that's the thing that's interesting to me about you know Catherine was saying, you know, that history and fantasy have always been intertwined, and there's there's a degree to which you know history has always been a sort of a form of fantasy itself, and and I I always think things like the the, the courtly romances and stuff are the prime example of that thing these these stories that are being basically written by priests whose mandate is like try to find ways to culturally get you know the 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 the, the barons to under control um anyway but that that was my point on that uh-oh yeah but sebastian <laughs> now that i have a chance to to take you on on this none of those courtly romances were written by priests courtly yeah, romances were written, say, not written by were, they were written by the chivalric class and in fact one of the most interesting things about reading the good accurate 13th and 14th century chivalric lays is that and to me this was a huge revelation and i can relate it dire directly to writing fantasy and writing history and fantasy was understanding that theologically the argument of Lancelot and Girond Le Courtois is that we, the chivalric class, we are holier than priests. We mm -hmm. are the literal descendants of Jesus and you are not. And the opening of the Lancelot tale is actually all about how the first bishop was a knight and that when knights are made, they are basically made violent priests of God. And so when you're looking at Lancelot and Galahad, you are looking at the correct descendants of Jesus as opposed to the incorrect descendants who are the church. And like that is what chivalry is about. Chivalry is about the use of violence in the service of God and not the way priests talk about it. And when Geoffrey de Charny, who was the real great knight of the Middle Ages, I don't know who this William Marshall person is. When Geoffrey de Charny says, no priest knows the agony of Christ, but we know it when the arrows hit your armor and you are alone. And epic. Uh, you, epic words, yeah. sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that—that's who they thought they were. It's—it's okay that you don't think they were then. I don't really think they were that either. But when we look at a culture, I mean, like we're sort of talking about getting some culture out of history. This is a very alien culture. This is so alien. You read you those romances where they go is, in and they're like two lepers are trying to rape a girl and we better kill those lepers. And you're reading it and you're like, wait, what did they just say? Yeah. Did I just misread that? Oh my this God. Is, oh this my is, God. This is not Excalibur. This is an alien world, far more alien than uh, the thing I said to Evan the other day, though, far more alien than 1996 Zambia. You know, like we like to talk today about like cultural differences between us and Japan or whatever. You climb into the shoes of 14th century chivalric culture you're dealing with aliens 
And um, and aliens who literally say, justice sleeps in my scabbard. I kill anyone I find to be unjust. And you go, wow, that would be literally sociopathic in, in a modern day Western civilization. Um, and a whole lot of other things. Anyway, uh, I'm not actually here to defend chivalric culture, just to make sure that Sebastian, <laughs> just to make sure that Sebastian gets it right. I knew a fun fact about about the 13th century, which is that the average age of people in charge was 18, mm -hmm. and so they were basically being run by college students, which um, yeah. might explain some of the um, excess. It, I actually you, talked about that with my students is that if you look at those nightly romances, for example, you have to realize that everybody's basically a teenager. And so it, it really more boils down to like frat boys and sorority girls than it boils down to anything else. They're basically just frat boys with swords, which is a horrible world, but that's the world that they lived in. Um, and so when you when you look at the, the chivalric romances, there's one that was just basically uh, a woman's into a knight. He's not into her because he's got this fairy princess. And he basically says, the woman says like, oh, you think your mistress is better than me? And, and he's like, compared to, compared to my mistress, you basically look like a slave um, to the girl's face. And so then she runs off crying to the king. And then he decides that he has to kill the guy unless he can prove that his fairy princess really is prettier. And the fairy princess shows up and all the men are like, oh damn, she really is prettier. Sorry, queen. But like, he's, he's, <laughs> like she's so much prettier that like nothing we can do. You do look like a slave compared to her because she's a fairy. And so that's the end of that story. Um, and so then the guy's saved. Um, you, it's just the most hilarious, like, I love reading them because it's like reading books before literary criticism was invented. And so it's like reading self-insert fanfic, like the worst of self-insert fanfic, but written in the 12th century or 13th century. It's amazing. Um, I, I, I'd like to toss in a factoid to follow up what Alina just said, and that is one of my favorite professors in university said, you know, if you want to understand the place that women were put in chivalric literature, it's important to go, if you looked at a 14-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy in 1320, and you wanted to look at life expectancy, she is four times as likely to be dead by 28 in childbirth as he is, even if he is a full-time fighting knight. So when you look at the life expectancy of a knight, not bad. Life expectancy of a noble woman expected to give regular birth, pretty freaking low. And that creates, again, a whole kind of chivalric ethos about, you know, like the flower, how fast it's going to wilt and all of that macho bullshit that we that women deal with today. But no, no, but it has a cultural root that if you're writing fantasy, you might choose to make use of. I feel that not enough characters die in childbirth. And I feel that not enough female characters say, no, I'm not gonna have sex with you. I could die. <laughs> or like or like in the 19th century, Victorian women were writing letters to each other about how they were trying to get their husbands out of town so they could stop getting pregnant. And how when their husbands came home, they would like go visit their friends to get away from them so they wouldn't have sex because they'd had like eight pregnancies and didn't want anymore. And how they were praying for miscarriages, which is quite sad, but nonetheless a fact. And so, um, yeah, really interesting to see, um, looking back, even in the recent past, even uh, just a couple hundred years ago, people uh, people taking those steps because they didn't have modern birth control methods. So they were just like, get my husband away from me quickly and make sure that he stays on that business trip forever and never comes home because I'm tired of being pregnant all the time. We have to make Daniel talk. You think we could get away from Europe for a minute? And I'd love to see, I loved Rage of Dragons and I really want to ask about Africa um, and like, <laughs> Leave, leave um, the, the problems of European children behind. Um, Evan, what was it like um, doing research for your book, or did you? Or was it just more a question of like finding a vibe? 
Yeah, no, uh, thank you. And um, I think that uh, in terms of background, my actual education is in um, comparative polit political theory and psychology, which I thought would be kind of fun at the time and that I would didn't drop and move on with my life. But it's funny because the stories that I'm most inclined to write and the ones that I'm trying to write sort of deal with a lot of those things. And so when I'm looking back at history and the questions that I'm trying to ask and, the, and sort of the issues I'm trying to interrogate are the ideas of uh, colonialism, oppression and violence. And, and then I'm trying to examine, like, I mean, I lived, I guess, I lived in Zambia, I lived in Africa uh, and grew up there, um, you know, and, uh, you know, shortly after I was there, the name changed from Rhodesia to, to Zambia. And and there's, I don't know, there's just something so interesting about even the way that a majority population reacts, behaves, and interacts when their most recent history and also their longer term history has resulted in them being uh, treated as if they are less than. Um, and so that's some of the things that I wanted to interrogate and, and question. And so it's more about, for, for me, the interesting part because. I'm just I'm just old enough that when I was learning history, it was still mostly about memorize this date, memorize this date, and not really deal with the context. Um, I love the idea, and, and that's what the whole discussion is about right now. It's about the context behind a lot of the a lot of the history, and so I'm you know the, the most interesting part to me is the psych the, the psychological context, uh, the political context, and then I'm trying to sort of take a lot of that and examine it in this secondary fantasy world, while also uh, doing my best to keep it the kind of story that would absolutely excite me. So there, there's lots of sword fights and lots of action, but hopefully there is also that interrogation of these other issues happening. Yeah, I think that's really an important point that you made too, because like my published books are not very history focused. I think actually I, have to strip the history out all the time. I do way too much historical research and I use like 5% of it because if I use all of it, it'll be really boring to everybody, um, even to people who like history. And so um, I generally, when I world build, use a lot less history than I think the research would suggest. But my books are set in um, basically a fantasy mobile empire sort of kind of um, in India, uh, based on my experience as an anthropologist over there working with trans women's groups. And to find like a cultural continuity of trans women in the past was really important to me when I wrote those books, because I was like, how do we find people in history that modern historians have from my whole life said didn't exist in history? Um, that you don't have a past or a history. It's not, it's not there, you can't find it. Um, and yet it, it is there obviously, and it's been there for a long time. And so that was sort of, what I was focused on was sort of looking at how do you tease out using culture um, a long-term, long-duration history where where your existence is normalized rather than pathologized. So, Evan, did did you ever get a chance to visit any of the Great Zimbabwe ruins? Um, no, I didn't actually. So I um, yeah, me, didn't get a chance me to go. either. It's one of the, one of the curses of my time there. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, the funny thing is, it, the funny thing is that distances. I mean, okay, I, I live in Canada, so distances here are pretty large as well. But the funny thing is that in most places, uh, you know, distance is not that big a problem. But when you actually figure out what the size of a place like Zambia or Zimbabwe is, they're massive. They're massive plots of land. So you know, it's 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 a, it takes a long time to get from A to B in a way that, and for example, in medieval Europe, wouldn't have taken like you could maybe take a jaunt from France to Germany or something to to visit. You know. The, to have a to send across a courtly messenger or whatever you're doing, but in in Africa it was always quite difficult because of the size and scope of the of the land. 
Uh, yeah, and our maps actually ruin that, don't they? Like, because our maps show it as being much smaller than it actually is because all the time we're using is Mercator projections. And so they show Africa looking quite small. I mean, one of the things that shocked me was, you see this with South America too, realizing how big Peru actually is if you use a, a, a proper projection that maintains its size and realizing it's not this tiny little thing on the equator. It's actually this gigantic, gigantic, like full on bigger than the US, like Western seaboard country. Um, that's interesting as well, so. Uh, Daniel, since you've been so quiet, I want, I want to ask you how how have your novels or how are they informed by by culture or history? Um, well, mine's you go back far enough, there's a lot lost. Um, so when you're going back to the likes of Troy, uh, Christian would know hell of a lot more about it, or Alina. <laughs> um, like you take. Um, the one complaint I had, like from somebody directly, was that uh, you know I didn't stick to the original story, and you sort of looking at it going, you do realize that there was like gods with plague arrows and golden apples in the original story, like it was written five hundred years after, and it's sort of the 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 power that actually writing stories have on people's perception of history. You take like Bram Stoker now, he'd be one of the sort of the biggest writers ever going, but very few of the actual vampires in Europe at the time, which were believed quite openly. There's a mass grave of people who were decapitated in, in Krakow from it. Um, but most of them weren't called vampire. And most people don't know the names of the, there were like UP, there's like four variations of like UP and Opai that were like Ukrainian vampires, Russian vampires, a um, couple of others. You know, the, the actual power of one person writing a story that's been carried for so long, um, makes it stick in everyone's mind. So if you change anything and the further back you go, the bigger difference it makes. So in Troy, until I read David Gamel's Troy stories, I, you know, you never really took the concept that you could change the story of, of Troy and it would, could still be, you know, as, as accurate as the Iliad, the Iliad's literally written 500 years after, Um, so I want to, I want to go back to a point that Alina in earlier. Um, so like in regard to drawing on historical periods for inspiration and structure, is there any intention of using experiences of those that were maybe left out of written histories? That's a huge thing for me is that like, not only left out of written histories, but like intentionally, like with trans women, intentionally misgendered. Like a trans woman was the governor general of New York in 1707. Most people don't know that. She sat for two portraits in a blue dress and we still have both of those portraits. And cis people will defend till their dying breath that this was, um, those portraits aren't really her, that this person really was just being slandered when everybody said that she showed up to to like part, like to the, the colonial uh, Congress in, um, in women's clothing, like that's written down, that's in the, it's in the text and they're like, oh, that's just slander, that didn't really happen. Or like uh, Elagabulus, like the trans woman empress of Rome, 
who famously asked and uh, put out a bounty for any surgeon who could give her um, gender confirmation surgery, right? And everybody's like, oh, that's just slander. That didn't really happen. And I'm like, cis people aren't clever enough to come up with gender confirmation surgery. I'm sorry, like, they're just not. And the idea that that, that that didn't happen, that those people didn't exist in the past, that they're, they were just men who were maybe effeminate or maybe they cross-dressed or maybe that like, and you just see the erasure pile up over and over and over again um, in every single example. And, and it's one of those things where I feel like if cis men and women were held to the same standards as trans women in the past, there would be no cis men or women. Like you can't prove that Julius Caesar thought of himself as a man, right? you can assemble evidence, right? But even somebody as famous as Caesar, you couldn't prove what his inner thoughts were, which is the standard that trans women are often held to in the past. And so recovering that history has been really important. And I think fiction is the best way to do it because there's so much institutional inertia and academia that's against it because you have to say that people were wrong. You have to say that people made really obvious mistakes. Um, and that's something that's really hard to do in academia because people like will defend their work to, to the death. So maybe after they've all died, it'll be easier, but... Um, <clears throat> Quite possibly. Catherine, you have anything to add? Um, I mean, the thing is, I think everyone realizes that the historical record, even in well-documented eras, is not complete. Um, because as Lena was saying, there's there's sort of forgotten groups, there's there's always a dominant narrative. Um and I think the great thing about historical fantasy versus historical fiction is you aren't you aren't beholden as much to like trying to 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 interact the dominant narrative like you can go in strange directions and if there's not research to back you up you just make it up um and i think that's very freeing for writers um and it and it lets you not just play with like what you think might have happened but what you think probably didn't happen and you can just ask yourself what if and i think the what if question is is such an important one for every every writer um no matter what their what their genre is, um, and, and it's a huge sandbox, right? You can you can go the route of of taking historical concepts and threads and ideas and setting them like Evan did in a secondary world, um, so you can explore them with more freedom, or you can you can keep your your, your fantasy in the, sort of the real historical space and let that constrain you. Um, or let you find new avenues. It's it's a really again it's a huge huge sandbox. It, it ranges from from second world fantasy to fairy tales to just it's, it's vast. Um, and I think you can explore things that have been sort of forgotten by history, but also explore things that are so well known that they're like wallpaper and deserve a second look. If that makes sense, you know because. I guess we were talking about chivalry. Everyone knows about knights, right? We've all heard Arthurian legends. Um, but again, there, there's always something new or some new perspective to bring. And that's the great thing about um, this space and the genre. Yeah. Christian, thoughts? Uh, I love what Catherine just, sorry, is my mic on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love what Catherine just said. Um, and I, instead of playing off of chivalry, I'll play off my, I have so many favorite things in history. I like all of history, but Greece. Um, sometimes history has currency directly in our world. In fact, I'd argue it, argue it always does. We just don't always know the background. But um, the democratic motions of ancient Athens for all of their colonialist, imperialist ways are with us, well, probably in the bad ways as well as the good. And so whether you write a 
fantasy that's kind of ancient Greek or a historical fiction that's kind of ancient Greek, you're actually talking about the origins of democracy, which are then immediately pertinent to everyone. And I guess this is my long-winded way of saying, um, history is however much it's written by the winners, which is something, by the way, that I would tend to debate. Um, most of our early historians like Herodotus and, and Thucydides are actually the losers, not the winners. But anyway, um, history is our story. It's everybody's story. And when we sit down to write fantasy, this is a very contentious thing. I once had a fight with a much more famous fantasy author about it. Uh, we don't have another experience to look at when we try and decide how elves and dwarves or guys in longships or trans people trying to rule a colony, we don't have another example of that besides our history. It's our story. And we have to look at that uh, to, to try and get something. So, you know, when whether we're looking at Africa or China, uh, just before I came on, I was having a long conversation with a bunch of people in England about um, how interesting the Ming dynasty is and, you know, like how pertinent it is and stuff like that. It, it's It's everyone's story. It's all we know. And when we sit down to write a fantasy novel, it's going to be the data points that we approach whatever we write, I think. Got in big trouble think, for that opinion once. I, I think I think I'm in, I'm gonna say that the present also matters too, um, obviously. So uh, our personal life history matters a lot, in some ways more than I think um, history, because I think like <clears throat> when we talk about history, are we talking about what actually happened? Hard to say. Are we talking about what the primary source documents say? Are we talking about secondary source documents? Are we talking about like our own experiences coming in contact with history and what that looks like? Because like we all know Pete's not on the panel and I'm gonna call him out because he doesn't like history. And he's like, oh, history and fantasy. I don't even look up history. But like, I think a lot of my friends, when they, they find out I'm into history and I tell them what I'm reading or looking at in history, their response is like, oh my God, how boring. This is so boring. And I'm like, no, you don't understand it's like all crazy hijinks. It's like, it's like a litany of crazy hijinks from the past. And if you read them, you would not believe the things that people got away with. Like one of my favorite people and the, the inspiration for my most recent YA book that I wrote was Leah de Beaumont, the Chevalier d'Eon, a trans woman in the 18th century who literally got uh, King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette to pay for her dresses. Like amazing, right? Like what a crazy, what a crazy thing that she got them to pay for them and Marie Antoinette designed them. And so like, that wasn't in the Marie Antoinette movie, right? So our, our normal encounter with, with history doesn't often get at the kind of, I think too often when it's presented in, in, in a condensed formalized sense, it loses the texture and the flavor of that these were actually human beings actually doing things that either, you know, that made sense to them at the time, but to us looks bizarre sometimes. Um, and that they're, they're really stories that are very individual and, and really fascinating and interesting. And it's one of those things where when you're talking to a lot of people, they, they, they view it as, as more of a, I guess more of the, the way that history was presented them, which is dates and places and oftentimes too often battles or events in major politics and not enough at the nitty gritty root level of how, how people work. And so when I say like, is, is history the source of what we do in fantasy? I think sometimes for better or worse, like it's our own personal encounter with history that, that we that shows up in fantasy. And for some people that can be wonderful. And for some people that can be really, you know, yawn inducing. Um, uh, I'm probably the only one that doesn't really like Tolkien that much, but uh, yeah. 
Hot take. <laughs> Sebastian, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I really agree with that point that, um, you know, his, history is, is amongst other things, um, a, a, a terrain over which we fight in order to win battles in the present. Um, and so we have a long history, for want of a better term, of, of erasing people and events and pattern. And, and, you know, when you, when you, when I was taking history in graduate school, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, the point of history is not to know the narrative. The point of history is to search for the patterns and to try to understand the patterns. But of course the patterns are the thing that is the easiest to both manufacture and obscure as, as to what happened. Um, and what I like about use, about exploring history in terms of fantasy is specifically that it is so inconsistent that there are so many uh, interesting examples of things that defy what we perceive as the dominant patterns, whether culturally or otherwise. I always use this, this example of um, probably some of, some of the folks here probably know who Ella Hattan is. She, she's always sort of my favorite example for this. Like every every once in a while, um, I'll get somebody on, uh, in an, in an interview or 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 a reading or or on Reddit um, who will sort of complain about you know female duelists. Uh, in in the in the world of the great coats, it's you know there's there's you know I sort of I sort of do away with sort of a lot of the notions of who can and can't be a duelist, and and I always find arguments that resort to biology are sort of the worst arguments of all, where someone will someone will say, well, I hate it when fantasy writers like create these super badass female duelists, and you know biologically you look at the muscle structures and all that stuff, and it always resorts to this kind of idiotic thing. Um, which, which of course defeats the point of understanding swords at all with the fact that, you know, two and a half pounds of pressure and you can put a rapier through someone's chest, um, a properly, you know, sharpened rapier, Christian can correct me on the, on the poundage, depending on which, which rapier or, or small sword or, or long sword we're using. Um, but the whole point of the sword is, is that it, is that it alters the, the, the dimensions of, of, of human combat. And um, I would never correct you, Sebastian. <laughs> We're going to get back to that whole thing about chivalric uh, romances when we get a chance, Christian. Um, but uh, but but I was like I was uh, I, I once got sort of uh, criticized for um, for a character named Dariana who appears in the 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 Great Coats books, and she's this sort of she's not very tall, but she's a, a, one of the sort of deadliest duelists in in the series. Um, and I always tell people when when it comes up with oh that doesn't feel realistic or believable or or God forbid the biology stuff. Um, so I always bring up Ella Hattan, who was an actress in the in the late nineteenth century in the U.S. She was born in I think Zanesville, Ohio, or something, and she had a stage career that did didn't go especially well. And she started fencing, and she was studying with a guy named Colonel Monstery, who was sort of a pretty renowned swords guy and and soldier of fortune. Um, and she started doing public duels, uh, public fencing competitions. Uh, and not only was she doing public fencing competitions, she was doing it with virtually all weapons imaginable, long swords, rapiers, uh, um, knife fights on horseback. And uh, she was beating every guy who ever came along. Her, her whole thing became she would go to a town and start challenging, you know, and put ads in the paper for huge amounts of money for whoever thought they were the best duelist to come and, and fight her in an exhibition match. And eventually she reached this point where she was pretty much chasing this one guy, you know, from San Francisco uh, eastward. 
because he kept going around saying he was the best, you know, fencer around. And, and, um, and so she kept chasing him and he kept running out of town before they were, you know, before they could have their, their uh, exhibition match. Um, and so, and, and, you know, there, you know, you, one can co sort of con concoct arguments about, well, to what degree was that realistic and things like that. But, but, it, but it, it's inarguable that this five foot four, 150 pound woman was one of the finest practitioners of sword work, uh, in the world at, at, at that time. And so it doesn't matter to me whether someone can say, yeah, but 95% of whatever, you know, were, were this group or that group. Because when you're writing fantasy, what we get to do is, is explore those exceptions and ask, you know, what are the parts of the story that we're not getting because we're so focused on, right, I'm setting this in a pseudo, you know, 16th century, uh, you, you know, um, uh, German countryside, and therefore all these patterns are going to take control. Anyway, so that was a bit of a long-winded way of putting it, but but just to amplify that notion that that's what I personally like about it is we can find those interesting exceptions and explore them at a, at a level of detail, as as Catherine was saying earlier, specifically of things where we don't know everything that happened around it. I, I think that example is like it's like one of those things where like yes, that example exists in history. But like, I always wonder like why we need it, like why we need that example when people are like, oh, women can't use a sword. And I'm like, excuse me, if I took a really sharp kitchen knife, gave it to a toddler and had the toddler run at you with it, you would freak out. You would be like, oh God, it's sharp. Oh, look out, oh no. Um, and it's a toddler, right? You know, like you don't need to be strong to, to cut somebody with something. Um, you don't need to particularly have a lot of even dexterity to accidentally kill somebody with something. Um, and we know that intuitively, we know that when it's us like, not on the internet chatting like some dude bro. We know that when it's in person, like I dropped a fork on my foot uh, last year while my friends were there. And it was like this blunt, like just regular dinner fork and it fell and hit my foot and, and left four holes in my foot, cut right through the top of my foot. And my friends were like, did that cut you? That's hilarious. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of blunt. You wouldn't think that it would, but it just fell down and went straight into my foot. And um, so you think that the sword is not gonna go into you? I, I just, okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know why I feel I need to put this in because I think I'm in complete agreement, but I love the tidbits that hide in history. And yeah, I totally, I mean, I, because I love history, I know that a lot of history is, is hidden. A lot of history is uh, buried, like deliberately buried. Like I, I have a hobby that I call women's military history because uh, the military history of women has been deliberately buried by men, and it takes some digging to get to it. But I feel I have to throw this. One of my very favorite tidbits that shows you how much military history might be hidden is um, uh, there's a quite a good book that probably everyone here has read called The Cavalry Maiden about a female cavalry officer in the Guard Cossacks in the Napoleonic Wars. And I thought that the most remarkable factoid is at the very end when it turns out that in 1822, Tsar Alexander decided that none of the women who had won the cross of St. George should be allowed to smoke at court. And like, that means there wasn't just one woman who won the cross of St. George. There were so many women who won the cross of St. George. That's a combat only medal in Russia that he had to forbid them to smoke like that factoid creates a whole world of of sort of imagination and oppression. It's not a pretty world, but it reminds you of a whole lot of things. And I guess it's moments like that that make 
not only history come alive, but make me want to sit down and write a fantasy novel where I, either I fix it or reveal it. I mean, I'm sorry, Christian, if you, if you write uh, a fantasy novel that has a bunch of women in like Bridgerton style costumes, but missing arms and with eye patches smoking cigarettes at the Russian court or pipes or whatever, I don't know what they were smoking at the time. We're here for that. I think everybody's here for that. I think, I think we would buy that in a heartbeat. I want to see, you know, Tatiana, whatever, with her cigarette being like, "Oh, remember that time that I skewered that Napoleonic, like French soldier? Oh, just ran him straight through." Oh. Mm. <laughs> okay. I really I, I, I'm on it, Alina. That's that's Thanks. next. <laughs> uh huh. Wait. I mean, I'm I'm here for it. Oh my gosh. Um. This, uh, I want to direct this one to Catherine first, but uh, do you ever feel you'll turn off readers that aren't familiar with the history or culture you bring into your writing? You're muted. I don't think so. Um, I guess maybe this is like a niche view in this day and age, but I think that humans have more in common than they have um, things that separate them. And I think that whatever culture you set your book in, um, there's things that speak to everyone. Um, relationships, um, adventures, dangers, growth, like the the kind of the basic things that happen to every human um, from birth to adulthood are, are um, they, they change color a little bit based on where you set your book, but I think there's a, a universality at the bottom that um, all readers can relate to. Um, yeah, I, I think probably Evan can also speak to this as um, a writer since he he pulled in a new culture for his books. Um, but I, I don't, I mean, yeah, people, readers are looking for things they recognize. And, and since we're all humans and we're all writing as human beings, they will find the things they recognize, you know, um, because we have a common like existence on earth. And, um, and yeah, then it doesn't matter what the window dressing is. And, and really, I, I think whatever historical setting you put your book in, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it is window dressing um, sort of over this like sort of larger common humanity that I think we share. Although that might, again, be a minority view. I feel like um, there's a counter argument to make as well, but that is how I feel. I think it's interesting though, because like, you said that you didn't you didn't get any critiques about having too many Russian words in your book. Um, I mean, there's always someone. I once got an email about a, a guy who was like, I think you you picked the wrong tree to put in the scene because that tree would not have been in existence that far north in the 1350s. Like, I mean, like you're never you're never gonna just like please everyone who reads your book, and 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 if you start trying to, you will lose your mind. Um, yeah. So I definitely did not get pushback. I got pushback because Russian names are multisyllabic and sometimes confusing when they're transliterated out of Cyrillic. But I mean, sorry, I, I don't know. Again, if you start worrying about like every single human ever who reads, you're just you're you're done as a writer. You're done. So and, yeah. I, I just asked because like as as somebody whose books are set in like a fantasy mobile empire, like I was encouraged to have like an entire glossary for the Hindi Urdu words in the book. Um, because so much Urdu is actually in it. I didn't realize how much Urdu is in it, but there's a lot of Urdu in it. And um 
And I actually had like, I had one like one star review where the person was like, oh, I hate when fantasy writers just make up words and then lists all these Urdu words. And I was like, oh, um, so, um, so I don't know. I feel like, I feel like sometimes when you're writing from a culture that's not, uh, not necessarily the dominant culture that's, that's common to most American experiences or most white American experiences, anyway, there is pushback on it. Um, and there is like some resistance to learning new words even, or like, um, uh, yeah, learning new cultural concepts, that kind of thing. I don't know, Evan, do you disagree or? <laughs> no, I'm not gonna disagree with that at all. <laughs> uh, no, I, I found I found and feel the exact same way. I mean, it, it, I mean, just even from a sort of industry perspective, um, you know, the big five, soon to be four, I guess, publishing houses are primarily in, in North America, primarily American. Um, the market in America is 10, roughly 10 times the size of the British market, I guess, in terms of overall sales typically. So you're really trying to sell to those two markets or at, the, at, or at least to the Commonwealth if you are traditionally published with one of the large organizations. So it's difficult because if you want to tell a story that falls outside of the tradition of that sort of Western style of storytelling, it's a bit of an uphill climb. So how do you do it? Do you just tell the story you want to in the way you want to and risk uh, the average reader who will probably pick up that book going, this feels wrong as, a, as in terms of story structure, in terms of character arc, in terms of all this, but it's not wrong. It's just that they're not accustomed to that style of telling it. Or do you try and Trojan horse it where you sort of surround your story in the trappings of sort of the Western tradition while still trying to get your overall uh, message or ideas or themes across, which may not neatly fall into that sort of style. Um, so yeah, no, I, I definitely cannot disagree <laughs> with the fact that uh, doing anything that sort of pushes against that sort of more calm Western tradition uh, is gonna lead to sort of slamming your head up against a bit of a, a wall sometimes. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, and and, and I agree. I feel like you know the big was a big four now. It's not really big five anymore, is it? Um, that you know it is. It is hard to get those kind of like own voices type stories out there uh, to a, a broader audience. Um, you know, you go with with Evan with with Orbit. Uh, you know, even they're you know still somewhat small comparatively. Uh, but the fact that they're just pushing and pushing and pushing now for all of these different types of stories that aren't the norm. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm here for all of them. I, I, I try to read as many as I can. Uh, you know, Rage was one of the first ones and uh, just read The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. And it's just, it's a, it's something that is completely different from what I've read, say, the past five years. And, and honestly, I, I'd, I'd almost rather read that now than read the, the farm boy becomes the hero type story. And it's all light. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, it gets, it gets boring and old after a while. Um, but, uh, next, next question I've got, uh, how do you choose a time period or moment in history, uh, to use, I guess, as your muse, um, and Sebastian, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, how do you choose a time in history? You know, I guess, um, I just want to amplify sort of for something, uh, or, or just to put a tiny spin on something that, um, Catherine and Aline and uh, Evan were saying, which is, um, you know, when you're talking about like, the, the, that the, the writing does matter when we're talking about telling a story with a different set of characters, different set of faces, different set of contexts, and um, and how you position the reader in that. And, uh, you know, I remember when I read Rage of Dragons, and I've told Evan this before, like, I, I love the fact that there was, 
because it was fully immersed in in the culture that he had created and because it there's there's like no white people in it you, you as a reader i get to fully kind of participate in the story i don't have to i'm not positioned as this this colonial outsider who's the secret source of of everything that's going wrong or something like that i i get to follow tao on on that journey and um and there's so many books that do that really well um you know it, it's because i write in ya one of the things that sometimes comes up is um uh, I'll get this weird thing. A lot of librarians, and I adore librarians, but they'll be they'll push Spellslinger a lot because it's a it's a young adult fantasy with a male protagonist, and there's this sense that well, because the problem in the world of reading is not generally girls not reading enough, young girls not reading enough. It's young boys who stop reading at around age twelve, right? Um, and uh, and so they'll assume that well, that's the solution. We just need to put them on the cover. And and that was never the case for me. Like my favorite YA novel was was Dragon Song by Anne McCaffrey about a girl who's not allowed to be a harper because she's a girl and and all these things that go on. And I was like, I totally felt like I was mentally when I read that that book. And so one of the the challenges in that whole process of trying to present other contexts and other stories is is just where do you as the writer position the reader themselves and to what degree is it do you do you sort of allow them to come fully into that journey, whatever it is. And that's, like I say, one of the things why I recommend Rage of Dragons to everyone, because um, because even if you are, and I think a lot of us are, I think a lot of people are, you know, I'm that way. I, I tend to look at books and I go, how much does that main character look like me? Um, you know, before I dive in. Um, but with 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 really great books like that, you can, you know, they're, they're really great gateways. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing, that that was one of the first ones you read that kind of made you feel like, okay, I can, I can jump into this world. I don't have to be too scared, you know, uh, of, of doing that. Um, in, in terms of periods though, I, you know, because my interest in, in history was, was cultural history. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've always had the sort of the, I've always loved the culture of the sword, uh, as a concept and, and the degree to which it's distorted through time. Um, it's natural for me to kind of focus a lot on sort of late Renaissance, early modern period, which has a lot of kind of, un cultural foibles that go with it that uh, that as a as a sort of a, a template context to draw from it allows you to create a lot of very strange things which is what i love to do so i have a, a book coming out in uh next year called um our lady of blades and it's entirely about dueling culture uh under you know as the context for it and um I was able to, because it's sort of in a pseudo early modern kind of uh, period uh, in a European context, I get to I get to kind of make the notion of trial by combat like incredibly elaborate and convoluted with all different kinds of, 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 of courtly duels, including sentencing duels where, you know, you're convicted for 10 years and if you, you know, but you can choose to try this trial by combat and for every cut you get on the prosecutor, you take a year off, but every cut they get on you adds a year to your sentence. And so you go in not knowing whether you're gonna walk out with a, you know, like walk out scot-free or, or, you know, 25 years in prison. And, and so for me, what I look for in a context, again, sorry for the convoluted answer, is I look for something where there's enough material and enough reference points for the readers there that I can, I can expand off of that into kind of defining my own weird cultural spaces to work in. You may ask one to tackle that one. Yeah, I, I see um, for me, <clears throat> it depends. When I was writing Stealing Thunder and Gifting Fire, um, part of the reason that I wrote Stealing Thunder in um, a fantasy mobile empire 
is I was like, well, I want to write a fantasy novel that has a trans female main character. Um, and to what Miles and what Miles was saying about how you know history is our touchstone for that, I was like, okay, let's find a historical trans girl. Oh, okay. Um, well, I know Eleanor Reichner in 1395 was arrested for um, fellating priests in a back alley in London. So I know she was there. Um, is that the story that I want to tell? And then I was like, this lonely trans girl sex worker in London in 1395, which I thought, eh, maybe. Um, and then I was like, well, that's not giving me the epic fantasy hero that I want. Um, and so as I was living in India, I was like, well, you know, Hitchers are trans women that have been around for thousands of years. And there's a historical context that when I when I went to India that just blew my mind, where like, if you said you were trans, they were like, oh yeah, I know what that is. And like in America for the longest time, because I transitioned like 20 years ago, people would be like, what is that? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that word is. I don't know, like the history had been erased so effectively that people acted like you were some new construction that didn't exist in their society and never had. Whereas in India, nobody ever gave me that answer. They're like, they can tell you, like, I, I remember a, a cis woman in, in, in Pakistan writing, like, we all remember the first time that we saw a trans woman, we were like five or whatever. And I'm just like, oh my God, really? Like, like you remember the first time you saw a trans woman, you were like five and she was there and she was visible and she was in public space. And so I was like, oh, okay. Like, I don't have to have 60 scenes of this is how I feel about myself and this is why I am the way that I am. And I don't know what to call myself because our language doesn't have a word for it, but I exist in the novel. Um, if I'm writing a fantasy that's set in um, in in you know uh, an Indian subcontinent sort of cultural setting, because that word has been around forever, everybody knows what it means. Everybody is is like, oh yeah, I got, I know that, I get that. I don't have to be taught or explained what that is. Um, and so that was so liberating for me. I can't even describe how liberating it was to be able to write novels that don't have to have scenes where the person is like, wait, you're a what? Wait, how did that happen? Wait, what's your life story and background? Wait, how did this come about? Um, where they're just like, oh yeah, okay. And then they move on with their day because they know what that is. So, so for me, that was sort of the reason, um, the strongest reason behind using um, the Indian subcontinent is, is, this, is the basis culture for, for stealing thunder and gifting fire. Christian? I, I want to go back to the former question for a moment. Um, Sebastian may have said most of what I had to say, but I'm going to throw words at it anyway. Uh, I'm a little wary, and I guess I'm I'm a little wary about about the difficulties of getting a modern big four publisher to look at non-standard fiction um, for the following reason, and I'll be I'll try and mix both answers into one discussion. So I wrote a mainstream uh, swords, knights, and fairies series that sold very, very well. And then I did something that I'll be honest, and I may offend some of my readers, interested me a lot more, which was like Middle Eastern 18th century non-colonialist, uh, there's nobody English, quite frankly, there's nobody white at all in, in Cold Iron. Everybody is what we would call a POC, whether they have a vaguely Greek or vaguely Turkish name. Uh, and it didn't sell as well. And I think that that is, uh, represents a reality. And uh, by the way, Catherine, I definitely share a reader with you because I definitely have somebody who writes to me and says that tree, it wasn't growing in that part of Greece uh, in the 18th century. But- um, Everyone's uh, got that person. Everyone I has think, that person. 
God I love think him. He, you know, he, everyone's got he that or she reads, reads every book. Uh, but, uh, but it won't stop me from doing it again because, and now I'm answering the second question, uh, and I heard this said on a brilliant panel yesterday, ultimately I write books that I feel I, I don't see out there and I want to read. So I'm sort of like, well, I wanted to read this book. No one else is writing about sort of the Greek revolution, sort of the Ottoman Empire, sort of in the 18th century with magic. No one's written that book, so I think I, I'll, I'll have a go at it because um, it's fun to me. I think that when I look at, you know, history and uh, one of my favorite professors used to say the word story, it's embedded right there in history. Uh, if I think there's a good story, either already obviously there or hidden under it, uh, maybe I want to tell that story or maybe I want to tell that story in a different way. And because I write both historical fiction and fantasy, and um, I'm just going to throw this out there because I get asked often, like, is it very different? No, it's not, because you have to explore. You'll never really know the past. So either way, you're exploring and creating. And maybe that's too much frankness, but I think I do it as much research as can be done before I write a historical novel. And I still know when I'm creating. Um, we don't know exactly what people said. And even when we do, sometimes we're translating it for a modern audience. Anyway, that, that's not really the question you asked. But I look for a great story that needs to be told. And if it's embedded in history, maybe I can bring some of that history with me. I happen to love the Ottoman Empire with all of its warts and all of its, you know, like it, it probably at times a terrible place, but um, as a much better historian than mine once said, like not all empires were Northern European. And once in a while, it's worthwhile taking a look at the Mughals or the, the, the Ottomans or the Ming or whatever. Um, and I, I had a great time with the Ottoman empire and I do it again. Hasn't to see there, <laughs> uh, Daniel. Uh, your thoughts? So, why your specific period? Um, for me, it came down to what I was reading at the time, um, and I started writing more for myself than for like. I never thought the first book was going to be published, um, and. I just sort of started writing it to try and sort of sort through thoughts myself on what was happening and it just kept going and then they did want to publish it and it went out. Uh, so then the second book sort of just followed on because for me the fall of Troy was only ever the start. A lot of the most interesting aspects of Greece happened after that. Um, um things that are like a lot of the the, the the stories sort of get mixed up at that point and their mythology linked in with pretty much everything uh but like the tale of Orestes and that is much more interesting to me than than the actual fall of troy probably because troy's so much better known uh that it's like You've seen films of it, like the Weedabix ad from the late 80s. That it's like, from I would have been about five, you sort of knew the story of Troy. You knew about the wooden horse. Whereas some of the other ones that lead off from it, they, they weren't so well known. 
uh, like what happened to everybody when they went home. You know, is it happy ever after? It doesn't tend to happen in Greece. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead. No, go on. <laughs> I was just going to ask, um, are there any uh, periods of history that you try to shy away from, uh, Alina? That I try to shy away from? Yeah. <clears throat> um, or that you just blatantly are like, nah, I'll, I'll skip that. You know what? Honestly, every time that I've ever been like this period of history is really boring and I have no interest in it. That's where my next book is set. Like, I swear to God, like every time that I'm like, there was like, and, and not all of them have been published, obviously, because I was a writer long before I got published. But like, I, I found myself being like, oh, Victorians, I don't want to write anything about the Victorians. And then the next book is like Victorian London or something or like, you know, every single time I think that there's a period of history that I don't really find that interesting it turns out that it's actually incredibly interesting and that I find out later that I really love it and that there's lots of really cool things to talk to about it. Um, and I'm that way with regions too. Um, I'm just really omnivorous. And I feel like, you know, there's so much that hasn't been written because people, um, people's imaginations are limited by their experiences in my opinion. And their experiences include their historical experiences. What you're able to see uh, and, 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 and hear and learn about affects what you're able to produce. Um, because humans ultimately are not as imaginative as we pretend ourselves to be. Um, so when I look at different periods of history that are understudied, that are the parts that people don't really focus on, those have such rich stories in them that are tales that deserve to be better known, but that have not for whatever reason been highlighted, usually for reasons of race and for reasons of language and for reasons of, of dominant culture. But I mean like, like Fu Hao, the, um, the, the Chinese general and queen um, who was married to King Wu Ding of the Bronze Age in Shang, China, who was buried with two tigers and like 80 bronze battle axes and led armies that we know of. Like we have her pregnancies recorded as well as her battle plans against the Qiang recorded and her great battles that she led from her chariot with her battle axe. Um, and yet nobody's written a Fu Hao novel to my knowledge that's been published, certainly not by the big five that I'm aware of, right? Um, and it would be this epic Bronze Age romance of her and King Wu Ding, right? Who, who doesn't want to read that? That would be fantastic. Um, and that's just one example of somebody who's really, I mean, quite a well-studied archaeological personage from Bronze Age China, but that like Bronze Age China, like, you, you know, Daniel was saying, everybody knows about Troy and, and the wooden horse. And yeah, that's true because that's Bronze Age Greece. And Bronze Age Greece is something that our society values. Bronze Age China, mm, maybe not so much. Um, and so it's one of those things where, there's so much in history um, yet to be sort of popularized or reclaimed or examined, um, certainly in mainstream North American society and culture um, that could be fodder for amazing books, um, just really interesting and amazing books. And so for me, I don't think there's any period of history that I shy away from. I think it's more that there's periods of history that I tend to gravitate towards. Um, and I tend to gravitate towards um, things that I don't know much about initially because I'm kind of a neophile. I, if it's new to me, I, it's the most exciting thing ever. And if it's something that I've seen a lot of, I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. So, um, so I think that, that, yeah, that sort of gravitation towards the less studied areas of history is something that I really champion. And I think that um, you can do that culturally and with trans women, you can do it. You can talk about 18th and 17th century you know, Europe which has been done to death 
but never with a trans girl in it, right? Um, and so it's very easy for me to look and be like, oh, this story's not been told, this story's not been told. I think being a trans girl author is like the world of low hanging fruit. It's just amazing. Like, oh, this famous trans woman who existed in the past, like who was a super spy who had her dresses paid for by the king. Oh, nobody's done a book about her. Okay, well, I'll just work on that then. Oh, this trans girl who was governor general of New York, nobody's done a book about her either. All right, um, you can just go down the list. It's quite easy actually. So I think that like, yeah, for me, it's just definitely gravitating towards the things that are less studied. And especially with, this, with how quick you're right. So you should be fine. <laughs> oh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, anybody else? Uh, Evan, I mean, is there, is there a particular maybe culture that you maybe wouldn't write in, inside of, or about? Um, I think that for me, I'm, I'm so... <laughs> to be honest, I, I feel so very, very blessed and fortunate to be able to have the opportunity that I do have to do what I get to do. There are so many stories that haven't been told. There are so many, um, there's there's so far that I can dig into my own understanding of, of life and the human condition and the way that history has sort of all collapsed into this moment right now to set up um, so to set up a sort of a, a dominant worldview that considers itself to be an objective analysis of the way the world works. And so for me, it is extremely interesting to sort of take all of the history, not necessarily as a sort of a research project, but as a flow of events and try to relitigate what people tend to think of as an objective or neutral reality that is the now. And so uh, there's so much that's exciting for me to be able to have the opportunity to voice some of my questions uh, and to present them in narrative and then have hopefully people read that and sort of maybe ask some of those same questions or go, further than I have to ask more questions. So to me, that's extremely exciting. And the short answer to your to your question then is no, I, I, I'm gonna stay where I'm at. I love the lane that I'm in. It's, it's a very exciting place for me. Anybody else wanna tackle that? Mostly, I just wanna say my answer is pretty much the same as Alina's. Uh, you know, like whenever I think I'm not into a place or a time, I immediately go, Oh, why not? Oh, it's new. Oh, I'm totally interested. Um, I, I guess it's just that I realized that some of the ways that I would tell stories wouldn't sell to anyone and I move on briskly. Uh, if I were to write the American so-called Old West, uh, most cowboys would be Jewish or black as they actually were. Um, and uh, the world would be super different and there would be very few rugged individualist English last name gunfighters or whatever. And that doesn't always make those ideas, I'm being brutally frank here, commercially viable. So sometimes I just move along smartly and find a story that I feel like I can you know, sort of, sort of move in. And Alina is getting ready to take me on and tell me that really my my Jewish black gunfighter is a great idea. Um, I'm just but, saying, uh, the no, Jewish gunfighters. You, I, you didn't tell city slickers that it wasn't a popular idea. I mean, no, um, I, but that okay. and that has been done. Uh, okay. But uh, but it, you know, sometimes I, I guess this is where I'm going. Sometimes when you dig, I guess I'm going right there, Alina. Sometimes when you dig in, you start asking questions. Like uh, again, I'm guaranteed to offend someone, not on the panel, but someone who's watching. But um, there's a group of people uh, who are very close, if not active participants in um, fascism and white supremacism, and they adore the Spartans. And I've never been able to understand this because, um, I'm pretty sure there's almost no Spartan lifeway or um, basic cultural structure that would fit into their idea of what proper white people ought to do. So I sometimes am vaguely tempted to go like Spartans, I'll show you Spartans. 
uh, okay, we'll have a nice Spartan novel. Um, and uh, uh, that that is almost a gotcha version of history where like, oh, you want to talk about the Knights Templar? They were terrible people, but okay, uh, let's, you know, let, let's have a little, little uh, historical novel about the Knights Templar. Anyway, I'm sure I'm annoying somebody out there, so I'll just drop this. Uh, what Alina said, I should have stuck there. <laughs> <laughs> Could I just jump in on that for, for a second? Um, just to say that, uh, I mean, what Christian was just talking about really, again, I, for me, emphasizes that point that, that history is, is a terrain that we fight over in the present so much of the time. Um, and of course, I always feel bad for all the, for the, the, the couple of people I know who just adore writing Viking stories um, because like Viking culture keeps getting taken over by right-wing young guys who, you know, see it as a, a validation of, of a set of values that, that they possess that nobody else, you know, that people in that time most likely didn't possess. Um, and I just wanted to say two, two, two quick things. One is just on a point of just pure honesty, because you asked, you know, you know, historical periods you don't you don't write. For me, I do I do sometimes think, oh, you know, I've got this idea that could be interesting in a vaguely um, uh, vaguely sort of sixteenth uh, century Asian sort of context, and and I'll and I'll and I will think, you know what, I'm just not entirely sure people want me to be the writer that that goes and explore and constructs the fantasy world that doesn't actually tell that story fully, but just draws from it. Um, and that may, for, for, I could be completely wrong about that thought process, but I'm, but I am conscious of it just as someone writing today and, and equally so uh, this, this is very short, but I, I wanted to say, um, cause I would be terror, I would be horrified if, um, writers who are out there right now watching this were to take the, the message that, you know, if you're trying to tell stories from other cultural or, or, or other contexts, then the sort of classic fantasy, let's all try to find new ways to repeat Tolkien sort of mode, that, 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 that therefore you're consigning yourself to commercial failure, because uh, not, to, not to disagree with Christian's experiences at all, but I do believe that right now, and I base this entirely on my discussions with agents and editors that I've had over the past six months, Right now, there is a massive push inside those big four um, publishers to find stories from from other authors who who don't look like me, who don't have my experience, who are people of color, who are uh, who are gender fluid or trans or coming from just different perspectives and have different stories to tell. There is, and and I say that as a guy who keeps getting. Uh, survey requests from my publishers on these diversity surveys, which read to me like someone's just absolutely desperate for me to find something in my background that isn't cisgendered, heterosexual, white dude. Um, uh, they don't ask you if you're a trans woman on those. You can't select trans woman, which really bothered me. I was like, oh, this is an interesting diversity questionnaire that excludes me from existence. Cool. You, you missed the, the little box at the very end. That's like, is there anything else about you at all that oh, we can right. mark it from? Other. <laughs> yeah, other. Uh, which is it's such a great use of the term, isn't it? Um, so, so, but, but just to say that I do think that right now we are in a moment where a lot of publishers um, are literally saying to their editors, your list must now have a noticeable percentage of people of color, of people from different gender backgrounds of things like that, of just other perspectives. So um, so if you are someone who is coming with something that that you think is different and non-traditional, this is, a, might, it, I mean, I'm not in, in those communities, so it's, I can't say for sure, but from my outside perspective, this might actually be a good time 
to start pitching that new story. Absolutely. Now, the, the question though is, is they sell to the, um, the publishers. Uh, like Miles wasn't saying that he had any problem selling it to a publisher. The question is, will people buy it? Um, because I think what Catherine said at the beginning is kind of true, but it's kind of a double-edged sword, which is that people go to books to find the familiar and to find things that speak to them. And I think that people have really different life experiences. And so what speaks to them can be quite different if you're quite different from other people. And I think that can have impacts in in sales. And I think we saw that, um, frankly, and, and Evan will, will be much more qualified to speak about this than me, but um, uh, up until the last year or so, when people made a strong effort to lift black writers' voices and to buy black writers' books, a lot of really talented, really qualified, really um, award-winning black authors languished with relatively low sales. Um, and we're also, um, you know, paid lower advances. Uh, so I think that there is maybe a penalty to writing things that are non-traditional, but that that penalty falls on minority groups anyway. Like it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, so I'm, I don't know, I'm maybe not as sanguine about it, but. Yeah, I feel like, um, what I would say is that there definitely is a lot of sort of uh, noise around the idea of uh, diversity in publishing. Uh, but the noise doesn't tend to signify that much at the end of the day because the overall percentage of, of authors who get published are still roughly around 90 plus percent white. And, and that's just the reality of it. Um, I remember the, I think it's the, um, uh, the British Awards for, sci for, for Science Fiction um, not too long ago. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna butcher the stats somewhat, but you can find it. There were around um, 4,000 authors um, uh, who wrote science fiction and fantasy in this one year, and there were uh, traditionally published. And there were five. Um, Tasha Suri, Suri, who's a friend of mine, was one of them. There were five who were people of color five who were people of color. So there's always that idea that way more is happening than is actually materially happening. Um, and in terms of also uh, sales and everything, um, the trick about uh, traditional publishers and trying to get sales is that for, for, for generations, they have been focused on understanding uh, a smaller group of markets than actually exist. And so they know how to get to those people. They know how to market and make their books visible to those people, but they struggle to do it for other stories. Now, it does not mean that the other stories, the readers for the other stories are not there. I, I started with, uh, with um, self-publishing. And in self-publishing, one of the biggest advantages is that you can use targeted advertising to try and make your book visible. And the, the power of that is that, it, it, obviously we've seen with a lot of the social platforms that can have negative effects as well, but the power for someone like me was that I could actually go out and find the types of people that I thought would want to read my book. And it turned out that they did want to read my book. It's not that these audiences don't exist, it's that traditional publishers, given their size, do not have difficulty targeting down to these individual audiences that are actually very large in terms of being able to sell books to and make money off of. It's just that they don't know how to do it profitably yet. Um, and so, you know, and, and because there's a tradition of a certain type of book coming out, readers who are or who are uh, black or, 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 you know, readers who are anything but maybe white still know and will go and buy those other those books because that's just what's on the marketplace. But it doesn't mean that that's all that will sell. Uh, so I think that there are lots of large enough audiences that are just underserved because traditional publishing does not know how to serve them. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm like a good Jesuit trained boy. I'm going to switch sides and back Evan and say that is also true. While I am 
you know, slightly shy of writing more Ottoman Empire books. I know from fan feedback, I won't go into it and just scroll in Twitter. You know, and Tasha Suri is a perfect example. You just look through Twitter, look through how many Twitter followers she has, and you know, you feel like you could immediately turn to a publisher and say, "Are you telling me there are not plenty of people interested in reading this this book or anything like it? Are you telling me that the Middle East or the subcontinent or Africa aren't valid targets? Because just look at this, 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 and this." Um, and uh, again, at the end, I'll, I'll just gradually alienate audience after audience. But um, uh, I totally agree with Evan. I felt like this since I was writing spy novels 20 years ago. I always want to say like, no, you guys need to work harder. You need to get out and advertise to these audiences. I'm sure they exist. Um, and and those, I don't just mean racialized audiences. I mean, sort of audience in general. Like, anyway, I could get quite shrill, but I, yes. Absolutely. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, sorry, decidedly. <laughs> should I talk? Should I talk more? No, I. <laughs> by all means, talk, talk all you like. I mean, I just I mean, you know, I, I'm just reflecting on what what Evan was saying. I just because you know, I think I think that he he makes a fair point that the audiences are there and that they're difficult to reach. And of course, he's had success with the self-publishing angle. Um, uh, but it's one of those things where um, looking at the difference between getting editors interested and getting audiences interested um, when you're selling to, you know, a, a market that's used to one particular thing. It's just an interesting puzzle that I think the marketers are working feverishly to crack. So, yeah. But uh, I mean, sorry, I am going to go on and say, so when I write historical novels, I'm, I'm coming to a crisis. And my crisis is I don't want to write for middle class over 45 white men anymore because they and I don't believe the same things. And so as I write historical novels and get fan feedback that basically goes like, why are your characters so liberal? Why is this Philippine of Greece so, so believing in like democracy and stuff when, you know, why doesn't he kill more people and have more sword fights? And I go, oh, I need a new audience. Uh, and yet at the same time, I need to convince a different audience hey, you could read a historical novel. You could even read a Sword and Sandals historical novel. I'm being very broad in my sketch here, but you could read it without being offended. It could be a safe space for you. You could actually get into this and also find some history that you didn't know before and stuff like that. And I, you know, like, uh, I, I would like to see a lot more exploration of audience uh, for everyone. Uh, building up black writers, building up people of color as writers, and bringing their audiences in as audiences for all of us. Um, guys, I, I hate to break into this amazing conversation, but I banked on an hour of panel time, and we're at an hour and a half, and I actually have to run. And I'm so, so sorry, because I didn't realize that it would be such a long and fruitful conversation, but I... I'm gonna have to bow out a little bit early and I am really, really sorry. And please, please keep going. Um, and hopefully I can catch the rest on the internet later. Um, That's fine. We can go ahead and wrap up here. I mean, I, I, I kind of was out of questions. I kind of wanted to let that last one kind of, uh, you know, get to, to hit everybody. So let's, let's take a moment. Um, and Catherine, if you actually want to start, uh, tell everybody about your newest release and then uh, what book we can start with in your, uh, in your, I guess in your series or in your library. 
Um, yeah, totally. Um, my newest release is a couple of years old now. It was the end of my trilogy, um, which was, it was called the Winter Night Trilogy. It started with a book called The Bear and the Nightingale and then ended um, with a book called The Winter of the Witch, which came out um, in January of 2019. Um, I have a new book coming, but it hasn't been announced and we're still working on it. So I might, I might hold off on announcing it here. Um, but yeah, cool no guys. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, it, was, it was an honor. It was Thank nice to meet you all. Thank Take you. care. Have a great day. Thank Bye. you. All right. Uh, okay. We'll start back at the start. Uh, Christian. Um, I have two books coming out. I have three books coming out this year. Uh, I have a historical novel about William Gold, who was one of John Hawkwood's uh, lieutenants. It's the fifth book in the series. You have to go all the way back to Ill-Made Night to get started. Uh, I have a science fiction novel I'm pretty excited about because it's the first time I've written a female protagonist. Uh, it, and also because I think it's a darn good book. Uh, it's called Artifact Space. And I could bore you all with everything it's about because it really, really, I don't know. It, and somewhat like Alina, I wrote it in 45 days. It just poured out of me. I could not stop. Uh, I, I could not stop writing. I literally couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't slow myself down at the keyboard, but that's probably slow by Alina's standards. Um, and uh, and I have a new fantasy series, which is going to start with a book called Against All Gods, which is set in the Bronze Age, although it's a much darker and different Bronze Age than uh, than Daniel's. Um, my my Bronze Age uh, sort of started with Margaret Atwood saying like, yeah, you, the Iliad may sound good to you, but it was hell for women. And um, my my theorization is the Bronze Age was pretty much hell for everyone, at least as it's described. So the shout line for my novel is uh, a thousand years ago, good fought evil uh, for all the marbles, evil won. And here we are a thousand years later. Um, uh, and uh, Against All Gods should be out, I believe in September. Awesome, Daniel. Uh, my most recent release is uh, a hero's welcome. It was um, the aftermath of Troy. Um, for getting into my stuff, I would—that's the first one from the series, one after the other. And a hero's welcome is actually free for this week during the con. Um, and if I can get about another hundred given away, I'll be competing with Diana Gabal on the month Sunday. <laughs> so, come on, download it. <laughs> awesome. Evan? Sorry, I had to just unmute myself. Um, what have I got here? I have recent, most recently finished um, The Fires of Vengeance, which is book two in The Burning Quartet. So I got two more books to finish. Um, if I was anything like the faster writers on the panel, that would mean I'd be done next month, but I am not. <laughs> so I will trudge along painfully and slowly and hopefully release book three uh, before too long. Um, but yeah, no, it was an absolute joy to be on the panel with everybody. So I've had a good time and good discussion. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so um, my most recent release is uh, Stealing Thunder, which released last May in the middle of the pandemic. Great time to debut a book. And um, then the second one, uh, Gifting Fire, is coming out uh, in April. So it's, it's available for pre-order now, but it'll be out in uh, on April 12th. Um, so that one you can pick up as well. They're both set in um, a fantasy Mughal empire with a, um, a trans woman protagonist who does um, some flying of dragons, but with lots of real aerial combat tactics in it for anyone who finds that appealing. So, oh, yeah. yeah. And my yeah. Gosh, the cover for Gifting Fire is gorgeous. 
Isn't it? It's a great cover for Good and Cry. I don't even have a galley yet, so um, I can't show it off. But um, yeah, it's a gorgeous cover. All right, Sebastian. Um, yeah, so if you're starting with my stuff, I guess uh, um, Trader's Blade is uh, the first in the swashbuckling fantasy uh, series. Um, uh, for YA fantasy, Spellslinger is the first um, book in that six book series. Um, and uh, this year I have three books coming out. Uh, the first is called Way of the Argosi, which is actually a perfectly good place to start if you haven't read any of my stuff. It's uh, uh, it's a character, it comes before the Spellslinger series technically, but you can kind of read them in uh, in any order. And then in uh, June, Play of Shadows comes out, which is set in the Great Coats world. And that is, uh, I'm, I'm, I was aiming to write the best swashbuckling novel set in a theater possible which uh, nobody in the world has been asking for, um, but they're gonna get it anyway. Uh, and then in uh, October, the second Argosy book, Fall of the Argosy comes out. So so yeah, three books out this year. So I've been, I've been, I can keep up the pace with these Christian Cameron, Alina Boyden people if I have oh to. Oh my gosh, <laughs> outrunning us. Uh, I, why don't we have a swashbuckling panel? Did why was that not a panel? Next. I want to fence. I want to fence all these people with small. Cool. Stars. Well, you're you're on. I, I I sorry. I brought a prop specifically to show Daniel Kelly. Daniel, I listened to your excellent reading the other night, and because I'm a super reenacting nerd, I have to. I brought this. It's not a weapon. It's an ancient Greek canteen. They didn't drink water out of wineskins. It's a pottery canteen uh, covered in cloth or leather, so that when you dip it in water, it'll keep you cool. Uh, probably with a cloth strap, just just for your next novel. You know, I just had to. I had to go there. Sorry. Yeah. Mm. Why does it not surprise me? <laughs> well, uh, everybody uh, that tuned in, thank you so much for tuning into this panel. Um, in my opinion, it's, it's been phenomenal. So, and, and to all our panelists, thank you all so much for taking the time uh, to come chat about history and science fiction and fantasy. And again, for those that are watching, uh, stay tuned for our writerly advice panel coming up in about 30 minutes. Uh, that one, it's probably going to be chaos because uh, I'm really interested to hear all the terrible writing advice that these authors have been through. But, um, but just again, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks thank you. For having us. Thank you. Thank you very much.